Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. All right, folks, let's dive in. Um, looking forward to this conversation, especially what we just chatted about off air and uh, and the personality that we'll be bringing into the show. Doug Denerline, he's the CEO of BetterWorks, uh, the leader in strategy, strategy execution software, excuse me, for enterprise companies. Man, his background is incredible. He's been, Doug's been working in Silicon Valley since 1982, starting with HP, selling the first PC, followed by 12 years at 3Com, 12 years at Cisco, massively scaling those companies. In his last role at Cisco, he became the CEO of WebEx post the acquisition of WebEx by Cisco. He's been running SaaS companies ever since, and he's been working for very famous leaders in the space, Mark Benoff, John Chambers, Lars Delgard and learned many lessons about what it takes to grow and scale high-performing teams. Um, he was the president of Success Factors, which was the first company to move performance management process to the cloud and was ultimately acquired by SAP. And now, Doug, we can add author uh, to your bio here and uh, make make work better, revolutionizing how great bosses lead, give feedback, and empower employees. Uh, so tell me about the sort of the impetus for a book? Was it that you'd sort of reached a st stage, Doug, and what you'd acquired, the knowledge, the experience, sort of the wisdom along the way, and you thought, I've got to either put this in the garage <laughs> or put it in a book? Yeah, Rod, it's interesting. Um, you know, having gone from managing a team at Cisco, I had 6,000 people there. I ran the U.S. enterprise for them for a bunch of years. And, and so I, I had an HR business partner. We ran all those traditional performance processes around you know, annual reviews, nine block, you know, calibration, all those things that were so horrible at the time. And then having moved over to, you know, a company that builds HR software at SuccessFactors and now at BetterWorks, where I have a chance to kind of rethink how horrible these processes are and make them into something that actually has value in it. And the other amazing part and the reason the real motivation for me is the annual performance process, massive research says it's widely hated you know people hate getting it people hate giving it and it doesn't change performance and it doesn't you know represent performance and so why do 75 percent of large organizations around the world still do it and so the book basically is kind of poking both hr people and ceos saying why are you putting your people through these horrible experiences that don't don't do anything in terms of running your business what, what do you what, why do you estimate that they are? Because you're exactly right. It feels like, I mean, look, we get institutionalized. Maybe it's too big of a word or maybe it is apt in this discussion uh, and description that it's even starts in school as a kid. It's like it feels like a point in time that doesn't potentially reflect what you know, what you might know, your abilities uh, and or context to the very results that are achieved in that one point in time in that assessment. So I feel like yeah. we've got such a history as even young children going through this process and it just doesn't get any better. But we, to your point, we still do it. Yeah. You know, from my perspective, it's for a couple of reasons. And <clears throat> if you look at it from a CEO's perspective, you know what, many of the top level people in organizations, they're the ones who don't bother doing the review process. It's like, a, you know, I'm, it's like I'm, a dirty I'm, little I'm, secret, with, isn't it, Doug? Yeah, it is. It, it's like I meet with my people all the time. I'm not going to take the time to write a review. But yet, do they ever go down and experience what people go through, first line managers, when they go through this horrible experience with their people and their HR business partner? And on the HR side, the problem that they run into is they have all these downstream things that happen because of the annual review process. 
you know, it gives you a rating. It, it gives you who's going to be the top 25% of the organization that we're going to give all the money to. And, and I need to know that so that I can get that right. But then to me, I say, well, now you're taking the middle 70 and going, sorry, you're just mediocre. We just want to point that out because you weren't part of the top 25. It, it's really a horrible, you know, kind of experience all the way around. And I think because of the workforce now going, you know what, I, I want to be at a company where people are invested in my development and not talking to me once a year about how I'm doing. And I don't want to go to a place that does that anymore. So I think some HR people, the smart ones are waking up going, I need to change. I'm glad you 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 sort of touched on that, Doug, because to me, it impacts talent, retention, recruitment, uh, even just Huge. the cultural experience. I mean, we think about, you know, sort of the the generations on the come, they're not, they don't care anymore, <laughs> they're, right? <laughs> they're going to experience this and say, you know what, I'm out. And you know, used to, I think that if when people were thinking about maybe transitioning to a new position, a new uh, landing spot, that was the whole point. You had to have a bird in the hand or you didn't do it because the risk was too uh, severe that if you left your position without a job and wait, this would, you know, was detrimental to your life, your family. And yet these younger generations, they're very happy to jump off the ledge. Absolutely. They're very brave. They're like, they're I, very I know brave. I'm I know what I don't want to do and I don't want to do that. And I'll figure out what I can do later. You know, and it is very surprising to me. Certainly my generation would never leave without having already something, you know, already done, but not today. And so do you start, are you, are we, where are we sort of in the continuum? Do you think? So when you were researching and, and writing the book and sort of taking in all the elements that you've experienced and witnessed, are we at the beginning of this transition? Are we midway how much of this is around just educating the base of human resource officials? Yeah, which people well, can see your it's, face. it's really interesting. The, the notion of moving to something that, you know, the, the industry calls continuous performance management um, has been around for a decade. I mean, Josh Burson has been talking about it literally for 15 years. And yet we, we're, we're maybe 25% of the way in. And, and it's very surprising to me because now, we have companies like Intuit, Colgate, Palmolive, who, who have been brave enough and, or showed the courage enough to change their processes around performance to something that happens four times a year. Every quarter, you set goals with your manager. You agree on those goals, both a couple professional that you're aligned with the company, what they're trying to accomplish, but a couple developmental goals. What are you trying to do? What's the company doing for me? Uh, you know, and you see the power of that in the change in culture, the change in engagement scores, the change in confidence in, in leadership, the change in understanding the company strategy are so dramatic that you just wish you could get people to see that if you were brave enough to make this move, the, the outcome is tremendous. I also want to acknowledge the challenges that leadership a face. And so I'd love to, for you to touch on some of this and or to correct me if you think that I'm far afield on this, but you know, it does become a challenge, especially in an entrepreneurial world where it's, you know, you start small, everybody thinks that they have sort of a window into leadership and strategy and vision in the path forward. And as companies grow, it becomes a little less, uh, it becomes harder to share everything that's going on because with the good, there's the bad or the challenge or the risk or, and, or maybe we're making a decision that could impact 20% of our workforce. Uh, you know, so there are things that aren't shared. It's sort of, sadly, like a parent-child relation. I mean, there are things I'm going to share with my 10-year-old yeah. and things I'm not going to share because yeah. it's going to add anxiety that they really don't need in their day-to-day. -day. So I do, 
I feel for leadership that is saying we want to be supportive. We want to be transparent. But ultimately, aren't we, Doug, talking about trust? In essence, if I trust you as my employee, you've got to trust that I'm going to evaluate you in a way or assess your performance and your contribution in a way that I guess is forward thinking, that is inclusive of you and future thoughts of the company as opposed to using this as something that is punitive or pejorative in my sort of yeah. my current tenor with the company? You know, it's an interesting time to have this conversation. Um you know, I, I've had an interesting career. I've gone from really big, you know, Hewlett Packer, Cisco, down to a company that's a couple hundred people, you know, so I've gone the other direction. And, you know, I think when a company is young, they can be more transparent. They're not, they're private, you know, they're not a public entity, you know, so it's okay to share numbers that you maybe can't share as a public company due to fair disclosure regulations about being a public company. But also, look what's going on right now. We have this, I'm very much a believer through the pandemic that a few things really woke up in myself in terms of being a leader. You know, at Cisco, I had 10 direct reports. I wanted them as close to me as I possibly could have them so we could always be around strategizing. Well, then, you know, becoming the CEO of WebEx internally, I became a video guy. And and one of my good friends, Eric Yuan, was my technical guy at, at WebEx, founder of Zoom. And the power of this technology and letting people have their lives back and not commuting to work and all, all that. And then now you have companies that are saying, hey, we want our people back to work, get back to work. And if you don't want to be at work, then find someplace else to go to work. You know, I think that generation, this brave generation is going to vote with their feet. They're like, if you're going to force me to be in the office four or five days a week, I don't want to be with that company. I, I like the freedom. We can measure performance in a meaningful way with tools that we have today. You don't have to count my keystrokes or number of hours I sat at my PC or my Macintosh. And so our whole company is around moving from performance management to achievement. So let's talk about your goals and then let's check in weekly or, or mid quarter. How are you doing against your goals? Did you achieve what you said you were going to achieve? And when you achieve it, I personally see you don't care. I want, to, I want you to integrate your life you know, your work into your life, not your life into your work. So this would imply, Doug, that we, th this to me would say that what you're describing would impact the talent acquisition process 100%. Right, at its core. Because if I'm coming with the approach that you are and your company, then I would think that I've got to get it right in HR when I'm selecting or putting out sort of the call to action to secure uh, talent so that we're getting the right people. It's not based on a, maybe a potential skill set, but it's around a series of qualities or personalities. I mean, talk a little bit about that process in getting yeah. it right. Because I think we've struggled as a country and as an economy over generations doing that. We thought, you know what? It's based on from our manufacturing models. It's a skill-based. And then we went, well, wait a minute, this doesn't really matching up. And then we've come face-to-face -face with the Peter principle that's like, well, Doug, you did great at this level. So why don't we bump you up to the C-suite? And then we veer off in that direction, right? Um, <laughs> so talk a little bit about that part of it in the acquisition piece and how we have maybe have to educate ourselves more holistically to achieve more personalized results. Yeah. And one of the, one of the big benefits of, of taking that lens off of geographical boundaries is there's incredible talent around the country, but when you're in Silicon Valley and you tried to hire in Silicon Valley, you know, you were, it was a war for engineering talent. You know, it's an arms when race. You, when we, it, it, absolutely. And, and now I, I've removed that boundary from my thinking 
and I hire the best people I can find no matter where they live as long as the time frames make sense. You know, don't, I don't want to summon in Europe and the crossover in times a few hours a day. But but you are right. The here's here's when it's really great is is when a CEO now realizes or leadership realizes the most important talent in a company today is not the thing you build, it's the people that you bring to your company. It's the most important asset in your company is the quality and talent of your people. I don't know about you, but the you know, usually the the athletic team with the best athletes tends to win more often than ones with the poor athletes. And so find A players and find them no matter where they are and and hold up quality. And and by the way, now you can go to Comparably or Glassdoor and learn a lot about a company before you go to work there. About is this truly a culture of belonging and do they are they invested in their people? And it shows up in places where people can look at that before they get a job. And in the book, we actually talk about asking, why don't people ask in the interview process, say, tell me how you're going to develop me. Do you do this? Are you going to talk to me once a year about how I'm doing? Or have you created something more inclusive in, in an investment in me so that I know that if I come here, I can grow and get to where I need to be, what I want to do in my lifetime? I love that example because it really talks about the, the shift and change in the power differential. That too. The power, I think it's shifting back a little bit, Rod, with what's going on with the economy right now. But I'm telling you for the last 10 years, it's not the executives who have the power in a company more. It's the people. Yeah, it's just and, the point. It's the players, not the coach. That's right. That's exactly right. How do you maintain a fresh perspective? I think that, um, and maybe this is really sort of under the guise of change, that it's really easy for us to say, oh, we're good with change, right? Or we're a corporation that embraces change. But I don't, I don't know, maybe I'm a skeptic because it's, I think it's harder uh, than we sort of give credit to. Uh, we see it in our personal lives, right? Changing our, maybe our morning habits or gosh, now we're in summertime and kids with par parents with kids of school age having to move them all around, it changes your schedule. I mean, it's just, it. there's something about it that is uneasy. And yet we want consistency. We want predictability in our work environments because we can sort of settle in. So it does yeah. feel like there's a bit of a, uh, there's an irony there. And I'm just wondering, how do you maintain a fresh perspective as a leader in the space to attract the talent? And how do you do so in a way where you can pivot, even if subtly, to change that is needed and necessary based on the environment around you. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think you have to go find um, leaders that that have demonstrated they can change, you know, um, and you're, you're on it. Change management is one of those other big things that holds people from moving to this new process. You know, we say to people, well, you don't walk into a gym and go over and bench 200 pounds. You know, you, you got to go work your way up to get to 200 pounds. And we are experts in change management in our company. And we will we can tell you, here's what you're going to experience when you are brave enough to make this change. You're going to get <clears throat> lots of grumblings from lots of leaders for three or four quarters as they begin to understand that they're building a new muscle. And they're not doing it the way they've always done it. And they have to try and do it a new way. You need executive leadership to say, this is going to be hard. And this is why we're doing it. And here's the benefit for why we're doing it. And we're going to do it by gosh. And you're all going to get on board and you're all going to be supportive of this. And we're going to go. And that's when it works really well. You know, when it's the CEO going, hey, HR, 
will you go implement that new stuff? And because then poor HR gets beat up and they go back to the old process. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you brought that yeah. up, the relationship between the C-suite and HR and in the book talking about sort of making a seat at the, you know, at the table for HR. And what yeah. here's an irony, Doug, that I <clears throat> it's always bothered me and especially in the marketing space. But it's like the two areas that it feels like companies ignore. It's sort of like it's the you know, it's the crazy uncle. It's the uh -huh. Uncle Eddie in a Chevy Chase movie or something. It's marketing because why do we need that? We just need to focus on our product and it's HR. And it's like, wait a minute, if you think about it, the relationship between HR and marketing are really pivotal because we're talking about the story, the narrative of the very people that make up the reason why I should buy your product because they're the innovators, yeah. right? I mean, there, there's so many connections and yet those are the two that seem to not have access to the top floor. And it feels like we've got to be able to do that because now to our earlier discussion, the, the generations on the come, they're looking for purpose over profit, right? They want to know why in the world should I work at a better works or name the company, Cisco, whatever it is, what, like, where do I fit in the narrative, in the tapestry that is the company that I'm committing myself, my family to? Yeah, you are, you are so right on the money with that whole, with that whole talk track. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's what it's all about to me. Yeah, it feels like it has to be. If if these companies are genuine in the way in which they want to look at talent, talk about um, the response that you're getting. So when when Better Works is working, to talk about an environment that is sort of typical to the need for Better Works, yeah. and maybe the arc and the change that you see, and not really just sort of in the end result, but maybe in the conversations that you have with that corporate client or the end. Uh, customer of what you guys are working on to support uh, a given entity. You know, what's, what's really great, uh, Rod, is when it, this is when magic happens. And, and you know, I, I've had HR leaders in my past that were really great. And I can see the power of that relationship. And I've seen them when it was kind of a tactical thing, you know, um, when, a, when, when I tell my sales team, if you're calling on a company and the head of HR reports to the CFO, don't bother calling on that company. That's a CEO basically in, in indicating that, oh man, that HR stuff, I don't wanna have to deal with that. I'm just gonna put that over and up somewhere else. No insult to a CFO, as many of them are phenomenal leaders and can do a good job managing HR. But when a CEO knows that that's a really important relationship and you have an HR leader, and this is what, I, what I'm really trying to drive home to HR people is you need to be incredibly curious about the business and you need to be brave enough to say to the CEO, you know, here's what you're trying to get in five years and here's our strategy and here's your team. And guess what? These two people on your team do not have the skills to get you there and you're buddies with them and you're not doing anything about it and you need to do something about it. You know, a good HR people holds a mirror up to a CEO in a meaningful way and can really move the needle for a company. And they say, and here's the culture we're going to build and here's the people talent we're going to build and here's what's going to get us there. And, and then you have a CEO that's you know strong enough to take that feedback and do something with it. That's magic. That's when a company becomes great in my book. And you're right. It's the most important relationship to the direct reports of the CEO is when done right. It's done by the head of HR. Do you and, think, and that I, yeah. Doug, is there any credence to this notion that maybe one of the reasons, maybe I'm going too far down the rabbit hole, but I, I do I think there's maybe some merit here, but maybe one of the reasons why the C-suite is reluctant to pull an HR, because really what, what you're talking there, and I've seen this, so I, I absolutely agree, 
is integrating in HR into the strategic vision and discussion. And so understanding the blueprint, right? Sort of the meat yeah. of the building, you know, if we're using that as a, as a metaphor um, and, and how it, the inner workings of that building, but that, you know, if you pull HR in and you allow them to have um, to share oxygen in the room, share opinions and feedback and be strong to your point and put a mirror up, well, you know, we're all, we may be, you know, you and I may have gray hair and <laughs> been around the block a few times, but we still have an inner child. Like we still have had our history that we've got someone there that is historically in an evaluative position. And there are a lot of C-suite members that have a lot of insecurities. They're humans. <laughs> and I just wonder if, you know, why would I want to pull in essence that person into my C-suite? Because I may not be doing what I need to be doing. I mean, look at look at how the the executive coaching industry has exploded in this country. Yeah, right. So there's a need. There's a reason why executive coaches are are at the ready and being employed into these massive corporations because they recognize they need assistance. It's lonely at the top in that regard. And I just yeah. wonder if there's something psychological playing there where you kind of say, I don't really want that mirror brought into my C-suite for those yeah. that don't. I think I think that's probably accurate, Rod. I, but I do think it's also this notion that you know all that stuff that happens. It's it's people complaining. It's you know it's you know we're going to get sued for this or it's somebody did something wrong. And I just don't want to have to deal with all that stuff. Well, you know what? Being a leader, that's part part of it, and it comes with the title. And you know, to me, it's been just the opposite. I want somebody like that next to me to help me make sure I'm making the right moves when all those things do go down and help me run the company. Now it's gotta be a, a relationship built on trust and they have to be a diplomat, you know, uh, about how they bring things to the table. But I've seen when it, when it's done well, it's really powerful, <clears throat> probably more, more powerful than your, you know, your, your general counsel than your CFO, you know, that's a numbers conversation. That's not a people conversation. Again, if people are your, greatest asset, then you need somebody that you can talk to about how the people are doing. Is it fair to assume or is it too idyllic that um, our professional learning opportunities and professional development are running commensurate with Better Works, the group groups like yours that are really working for sort of a new experience and organization of understanding capital management? Yeah, you asked kind of where we were on the curve. You know, if you think about it, our our customers tend to be uh, early adopters and understanding that that every HR person on the planet knows that the current process is horrible, yet they still do it. It's the ones that are go, you know what, it's horrible, yes, but I, I need to change it because I we want a different experience here. And it's probably done more in smaller, easier in smaller companies than in larger ones because they've been doing it that way for a long time. So so I, I feel like we're crossing the chasm, if you will, and we're early adopters are still kind of our customers and we're trying to get it to Main Street. And was another motivation to write the book saying you know, others you know, who aren't doing this, it's it's time to move. It's time to really rethink what you're doing. And that's the other thing that we suffer from a little bit as a software company in this space is many of them just want to take their current process and put it in, you know, in a, in a technology. Yeah, and, like and digitize missing, it or something. Exactly. You're missing the opportunity to rethink it from the ground up. Yeah, we we struggle to lean into our vulnerabilities as organizations and as people and and to, yeah. I guess, trust that we can learn something 
on the other end of that. How do we focus on sort of this human-centered approach? Think of it like in education, we talk about student-centered approach. And you can see right through what's authentic and what's just sort of checking a box potentially for a marketing ploy, right? To make yeah. some, to appease somebody out there, a body of people or organizations that are governing sort of what we're doing. Help me understand the human-centered approach in the world that you occupy. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that we try to do is is the HR community is very tight and they learn from each other, you know, and so we try to bring our 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 success customers to talk to customers that aren't customers yet and and to learn the benefits of that. Uh, as an example, the woman I wrote the book with, Jamie Aiken, she was one of my customers at success, at success Factors. She was head of global talent at a very large plane manufacturer in Canada. And, and she was a customer and she was doing really innovative stuff. And I loved her mind and, and what she was up to. So I hired her into success factors. I said, come over on the vendor side. And what I want to use you for is, you know, HR people don't love salespeople. I mean, that, they, they want people that understand their mission. You know, right. not, not, I don't want to be sold to. Yeah. And so Jamie's wonderful at sitting down with them saying, let's talk about transformation, you know, and here's the benefits of transformation. And here's how we can build a model that you can take to your leadership team about why this transformation is so important to the company and help them build that, you know, that deck, if you will, to help people be brave enough to move to this transition. And so it's, it, I need to, what we try to do is, is, and we are this certainly as a company, we, we live in our own product, Rod, and our culture is pretty amazing. I mean, in the great resignation, my turnover for the last six months has been less than 5%. And and people enjoy the experience of working in this company because they can bring their authentic self here. We do invest in them, not only in helping the company achieve its goals, but helping them achieve their goals too. So, you know, and we're just trying to build that that knowledge into what we do for other customers in our professional services team. You know, and and again, trying to help people see what you can do when you are brave enough to make these changes. Let's let's pivot a little bit, if you don't mind, and talk a bit about you. I mean, you 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 mentioned it earlier. It is, I think, it is very interesting when we think about, you know, we think about the American narrative, the American dream, the economy, and it's you, it's the sort of the small guy or gal that grows and grows, right, and kind of hits the mountaintop. And yet, you talked about how you were at these iconic, you know, brands and you know, these obviously these, you know, sort of we talk about like terminal degrees and doctorates, or whatever. Like you were at the top, and you've worked your way not down, but through a different path to smaller organizations and companies with a hope it looks like to impact the very companies that you left um, in, in, you know, from what you'd contributed along the way personally and professionally. Is there something about you even sort of early on, like if you and I had met in your 20s that I would have said, you know, I'm going to look back and say, Doug's going to be the guy that is going to take a different, a little bit of a different path. This isn't potentially just about getting the highest salary, the yeah. highest rank. <laughs> There's more about legacy. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, uh, um, you know, I was at Cisco at a very interesting time. I went there in 1998. I think we had about 14,000 employees. We were doing a couple billion in revenue, and I was running the U.S. enterprise sales organization for them. And in two and a half years, we hired 5,000 people every 90 days for two and a half years. And, and the end of in 2001, we had 48,500 employees. My sales team grew from 400 to 6,000 in that period of time. And, and so I, I, and I loved being on that rocket ship with them. It was an incredible time to be a leader in you know, a company with that kind of momentum in the world. 
Well, then when I got the opportunity to run WebEx, you know, I, I, I started to, now I've gone from being a sales leader to being an operator, you know, being a CEO, if you will, and, and having much more of an ability to affect a whole organization. And I fell in love with that ability, if you will. Uh, and, and also saw the power of SaaS as software as a service, as a technology, and the impact it can have on, on innovation. And so I've kind of gone that route ever since. And, and to be honest, I fell into BetterWorks because a woman that I'd hired twice in Salesforce and at SuccessFactors sent me a text saying, you need to come at this new company I'm at and be the CEO, and it happened to be BetterWorks. And John Doerr is the lead investor here, and he's just an iconic, you know, investor leader at Kleiner Perkins, uh, and the you know the son of OKRs, if you will. And and I spent time with John, and John, we made a commitment to each other where he said, you know, I, I'm very committed to this space. I love the mission of our company, but I didn't ever think I'd probably come down and run something as small as this company was when I got here. It was less than 100 people when I got here, but I have thoroughly enjoyed what I've been able to do here and the experience that we're building and the impact we're having on corporations around the world. And so I'm highly motivated to try and, you know, bring the experience that we know we can bring the companies to all the big companies in the world, if we can just get there. Well, what I love is that even just in our experience, just through Zoom here and the technology is that you're incredibly engaging and transparent. I think it's really refreshing and it reflects to me. It's nice to see a company and the leadership reflect uh, sort of a shared mission and voice. And I think you do that in spades, which says a lot about better works and what you what you bring to the table. Um, Doug, I want to make sure that people can either get in contact with someone at Better Works or they can learn more about uh, the offering in the space. Where should they go? Um, absolutely. We're, 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 I'm very, I'm very approachable if you, you haven't picked that up. So I'm Doug at BetterWorks. So please email me, email me, no problem. I'll get you to the appropriate people, uh, myself without a problem. Uh, and, um, you know, that's probably the best way, uh, Rod. And then, you know, the book is available anywhere you can go buy a book. And so, uh, that'd be great too, because the, the book is a journey of, pointing out how bad the process is today. And then it's showing seven different companies approach that they have taken to transform to something different. And then it shows the results of that. It's not a, it's not a commercial for better works. There's one chapter that talks about what we do, but it's more about this is the benefit of this journey. And then if you go on it, it's uh, you know, what, what will happen to your company? Because the end result here, Rod, is people don't realize your company will perform better you know, I love that people perform great, but what happens when people perform great, the company performs better than their competitors. And that's the end result that we're trying to get to. Yeah, I, I think it's wonderful. I like the way the book is laid out with these examples. Uh, I think it ties into the wisdom and experience that you have brought to the table, which is incredibly valuable. Um, and obviously speaks to the growth um, and development of better works and just the, you know, the expansion that you're experiencing there. Check out Make Work Better, revolutionizing how great bosses lead, give feedback and empower employees by my guest, Doug Dennerline and his co-author, Jamie Aitken. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.